You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We are finding ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 4. It's a great book of the Old Testament. It's really a book on leadership. And again, here's the storyline. God called this man, Nehemiah, to lead a special ministry in Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls that had been broken down, to rehang the gates that had been burned down, to reopen the temple, which is their version of the church, so that God could be worshiped. And then the nations could hear of a coming Messiah that we know as Jesus. Well, As soon as Nehemiah rose up, there were people who were also rising up to stop him. Now, before we get into the reading this morning, I've got to tell you that there are going to be a couple of strange names, but nothing like we saw last week. Last week was a whole litany of weird names, people that you wouldn't name your kids after because you couldn't pronounce them. And I realized that when I was saying that, I said, man, we just like read the whole Hebrew phone book. And I learned afterwards that youth were texting each other. (laughs) What's a phone book? Do you know what a phone book is? (laughs) It was like Google search. So Nehemiah rises up to serve God. People rose up to stop him. Here's what we learned from chapter four. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, He became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. And what we see here is really spiritual warfare. It really is the enemies of God trying to stop the work of God. And what we're seeing in Nehemiah 4 is that ministries have enemies. And if you're a Christian and you hear that, you may be shocked and you may be under the notion, well, if we just love God, then everybody will love us. No, we worship a Jesus, a guy who was murdered. You're on the team of the hated. You got to accept it and embrace it. Doesn't mean we have to love it, but we got to manage it. So Jesus told, told us they're going to treat you like they treat me. And this is spiritual warfare because if God is for you, Satan is against you. And here we see enemies are led by a guy named Sanballat. And then he recruits Tobiah. And they are there throughout the entirety of the book of Nehemiah. They don't go away. They don't get saved. They don't apologize. They don't give up or give in. In fact, it just escalates as the book continues. And you're going to see they recruit into their fight a number of other leaders and people. So it goes from a minority to a mob. And what is the first thing Nehemiah does in the face of spiritual warfare? He prays. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. 
Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from their sight, from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So the story continues. We rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Here, God's people are just getting started. They're in their infancy days and the attack comes on early. This is the same when Jesus was born. King Herod orders the killing of all Jewish boys trying to eliminate Jesus and all who would come to follow him. The same thing happened in the days of Pharaoh of Egypt in the Old Testament. He sought to murder all the little Hebrew boys because he knew that if they grew up, they would become strong in number. Here, again, God's people are in the infancy of their ministry. It's the beginning, and Satan knows, and demons know, and evil doers working with them know that if they continue and succeed and get strong, they're going to be able to fulfill all that God has called them to, and since they're against God, they are against God's people. So it starts with Sanballat and Tobiah, and then they add these additional men. So this is as well an issue of religious freedom. God's people simply say, we want to rebuild the wall and rehang the gates so that we can secure our city. The entire goal is to get the temple opened so that God can be worshipped. And their opponents don't want the temple open. This opposition, these political leaders are seeking to guarantee that there isn't religious freedom for God's people. You know, it's the same spirit in every age. The leaders may come and go, but the demons are always the same. And there's one guy here, Sanballat. He is the leader. And Tobiah, he's like the second barrel of the gun. And it's likely that Tobiah is married into a believing family. You're going to see as this book goes along, he's not a believer, but he marries a believer. And so he gets one foot into the community of God's people. Satan is always trying to get someone inside. That's where the most threat and harm come from. It's from the inside. You see, the most dangerous people to God's mission and God's ministry aren't the people that we know. It's the people that we, it's not the people that we don't know. It's the people that we do know. The Apostle Paul, his farewell address to the elders in the city of Ephesus, recorded in Acts 20, he says this, even from your own number, not outsiders, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. The point is this, if Satan can get one person on the leadership team. One person relationally connected, one person who is trusted, then that begins the entire work of undoing what God has been doing. 
In the same way, you have a real crisis in your family when a member of your family is your enemy. I hate to say this, but for some of you, the most dangerous people are related to you. And this is the case here. Tobiah hates God's people, but he marries one of the women who is a believer. Now this enemy is a part of the family. So in addition to spiritual warfare and attack on their religious freedom and their legal problems, Nehemiah and the rest of God's people have PR problems. There is slander. There's already been false charges that Nehemiah is like a terrorist, that he's guilty of treason, that he's against the king, he's a criminal, he's been breaking the law. All of these false allegations today, we would call it libel, slander, defamation, the internet. That's what it's there for. And so there's this negative narrative that is put forth. We read in verse 1 that Sanballat ridiculed the Jews. You know, he's got his own YouTube channel and his slogan is hashtag, I hate Nehemiah. And what do God's people do in response? For the second time in this chapter, there's prayer. But we pray to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Now, at this point, they haven't sought to meet with Nehemiah. They haven't asked to meet with him. They don't try to work things out with Nehemiah. They start publicly, and that's what evildoers do. They start publicly, put a lot of pressure on you, and then demand to meet with you privately. They're going to demand to meet with Nehemiah a little later in the book, and Nehemiah's like, no way. I'm not going to meet with you privately because I can't trust you. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, that's the region in which Jerusalem is located. The strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to the work. So the enemy say, we're going to kill them. If you were to ask them why, well, it's because they want to get the church open. We don't want the church open, so we're going to kill them. And can you imagine being those people? How many of you are like, well, I actually don't mind going to church, but I'm not really crazy about being killed to worship God. God's people here are going to have to pay a very high price. They're having to lose some of the reputation, some of their relationships, and now they run a risk of losing their own life. And what Nehemiah and the people are trying to do in Jerusalem, they're trying to create a place for God's people. The rest of the world doesn't know God, but we do. The rest of the world doesn't worship God, but we will. The rest of the world doesn't consider God, but we are. And their enemies are saying, no, we're going to kill you. You will pay a steep price for trying to worship God freely. And so it really comes down to a governance battle. Who is going to take the lead? Nehemiah has a God-given vision and his enemies have a different vision. Nehemiah and Sanballat, they are the leaders for and against God's mission. 
Nehemiah has a vision. Sanballat has an opposing vision. It's division. This is the way it always works. And there can't be compromise in the middle because to compromise means it's not going to be God's mission. It's not going to be God's vision anymore. There's nothing to reconcile, nothing to negotiate, nothing to talk about. We may fundamentally disagree. Doesn't mean I hate you. Doesn't mean I won't pray for you, but I'm not going to compromise God's will and God's desires. That's where they find themselves. And the governance war is, is Nehemiah going to lead God's people or is Sanballat? That's the question. And you see, the governance war started in heaven. The first time there was ever a coup attempt, it was on God or against God, perpetrated by, orchestrated by Satan and demons. God was in charge. But Satan decided he wanted to dethrone God and sit in God's place and rule and reign. And there was war in heaven and Satan was cast down to earth and he declared war on Adam and Eve, our first parents, and he won. And here what you have is a battle for who's going to lead God's people. They are trying to remove Nehemiah from the position that God has assigned to him. We use the language in our day of a platform. You've probably all heard the language, and it's used with social media outlets, digital media outlets, traditional media outlets. And a platform is a word that originally was brought into the English language about, 50, about the 1500s. And it was when someone had a message that they needed to communicate to the masses. They would create a little platform, literally a little stage, so that person could stand on it, be seen and heard. Well, if they didn't have a platform, they would literally take a soapbox, a box which you carry soap, flip it over. That would be what they would stand on and speak from. We still use this language today. Oh, that person's on their soapbox. Well, just so you know, this is my soapbox. How it works, this is my platform. So a person would be elevated and they would speak and people could see them and hear them. And then they could decide as the crowds gather, they could hear and decide for themselves. I like what they're saying. I, I think I could trust them. I want to follow their leadership. Primarily, this was for politicians and preachers. Today, there are lots of platforms, social media, digital media, this cause, that cause. There are two ways to build a platform. It was true in the 1500s. It's true today. You can have a positive platform or a negative platform. Positive platforms amass a following by communicating a message. Negative platforms amass a following by attacking the messenger from that other platform. So there are two ways to get a crowd. One is to say something. The other is to attack someone who already has a crowd. They did it in Jesus' day. Jesus had a platform. People followed him. He literally had followers. Like social media started with Jesus. He's like, come follow me. Okay, click. <laughs> yeah. He had followers and the religious leaders were against him. 
So they would sway the followers and, and come against and attack so that those followers would no longer be with Jesus. Maybe they'd follow them. What happens here is Nehemiah had a positive platform. God wants the city repaired. God wants the church open. God wants religious freedom for people to exercise their faith so they can love and serve and raise their family. That was a positive platform. His enemies and critics, they were trying to steal his platform. And what happens when you have a platform as Nehemiah does? Those who are against you attack you, make it personal, and try to make you take it personal. The goal is to have such an annoyance and frustration that you have to engage them. And here's the big idea. If you engage, you will enrage. And what they really want, number one, they want you to address or acknowledge them because then what you're doing is pulling them up on your platform. And if they get on your platform, they're going to try to steal some of your followers. Some of your followers are going to be gullible and naive and believe them like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that Nehemiah was a terrorist. I can't believe he was a criminal. I can't believe he's been lying to us. So what Nehemiah does, he doesn't engage. He just continues to move forward. And here's the big idea. The war is over the word with a capital W, meaning God's word. The war is over the word. If you fast forward in the book of Nehemiah, the reason that Nehemiah is building this ministry is so that Ezra can literally come, stand on a platform, and preach the word of God. And what happens? The Holy Spirit pours out. It's like Pentecost of the Old Testament. And people are saved and the praise team starts writing songs and people are, are learning the word of God, getting freed from bondage, having sins forgiven. Lives are being changed and legacies are being transformed. But everything the enemies are doing is to try to stop the preaching of God's word. The war is always, make no mistake, the war is always on the word. The goal here is to stop the word of God from being preached. And the ministries that preach the word, people are going to come against the word. I'll give you an example. Did Jesus have enemies? <laughs> yes. Did Jesus have a good ministry? Yes. Did Jesus have a perfect ministry? Yes. That's kind of discouraging, right? So you can have a perfect ministry and have enemies. Yes, Jesus had a perfect ministry and he had enemies. Does he still have enemies? Yes. The Bible calls them the Antichrist. They're just like Sanballat and Tobiah. Whatever Jesus is trying to do, they're trying to stop. And it's going to continue until he comes back. Well, not only do ministries have enemies... I'll tell you this, you have enemies, you personally. How many of you already know this? And some of you, this is new. And for some of you, it's very painful. You're like, I, I wouldn't attack people. I wouldn't slander people. I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't tell lies about people. I wouldn't come against them to destroy them. 
That's because you have the spirit of God and they have a different spirit. The war is still over God's word. And then there's an entire category of unrepentant people. They attack the truth and they despise you. You say, hey, you're sleeping with your girlfriend. You shouldn't do that. And they say, well, oh, that was offensive and intolerant. Uh, You shouldn't be cheating on your wife. Well, that's controlling. No, it's convicting. There are certain people, they just don't like what God says. So in verse 1, Sanballat was angry. In verse 7, it was people with him were all greatly angered. So it's one thing to have one angry person, but now they have a mob. It's like, oh my gosh, there's a growing number of you making a lot of noise, recruiting other soldiers into this fight. And so their anger triggers your fear. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, just kept telling us, kept telling us, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Satan will always want you to move into your fear so that you try to make decisions from there. You will never make a good decision from fear. And the Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear. And the Bible also says that the love of God casts out fear. So ultimately, you've got to decide, am I going to live by faith or am I going to live by fear? Am I going to live by the power of the spirit of God or by the spirit of fear? What did Nehemiah decide? Next verse. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. So they were open carry Hebrews. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Who or what do you fear? The Bible tells us in Proverbs that there is something called the fear of man, and it says that that is a snare or a trap. Now, their anger may be real. Your fear may be real. It can come upon you, but you can't let it in you. So when their anger triggers your fear and your fear comes upon you, and some of you can feel it, and some of you, the person you are when you are afraid is not the person you normally are, and the people who love you can see it, they're like, are you okay? What's going on? You don't seem yourself. And you're like, yeah, I'm not doing so well. That's the spirit of fear. And when it's on you, I have to ask a very important question. Do you know how to get it off you? Because you can't get it off you with medication. You can't get it off you with self-help. You can't get it off you with positive self-esteem. You need the Holy Spirit to take it off you. If the spirit of fear has come upon you, then the spirit of God needs to take it off you. And what did Nehemiah do? He turned to the Lord. 
He remembered the Lord. He remembered the power of the Lord. Then that fear came off the leader and the fear came off of the people. When our enemies, this is the next verse, heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. They had a mind to work. They were really unified. They marched forward together. This can be your family, can be your marriage, your parenting, your ministry, your business. Once fear sets in, it's really hard to get it out. Once people start getting used to fear, they get controlled by fear. Once you start surrendering to fear, you will be driven by fear. What Nehemiah decides is I'm not going to let fear in me. And we cannot let fear in us. Yeah, the world is a disaster, but we are God's people. And we need to make a plan to have a future that God's in. Now, the rest of chapter 4 comes down to these two great images, the sword and the trowel. Let's hear the rest of the chapter. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all of the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Then I, oh, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. If we are widely separated from each other along the wall, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. What's going on is that that trumpet will signal where the enemy is trying to attack. You got this long wall that people are trying to rebuild and gate after gate after gate. And if you hear that trumpet blast, the attack is coming from this sector. Come, let's fend off the enemy. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, each, even when we went out for water. So you show up, and they're like, join the team. Like, okay, what do I get for joining the team? Is a water bottle, a sticker for my camel? No. You get a sword and a trowel. And you're like, oh, okay, what do we do with these? Good, thanks for asking. Thanks for playing along. What you do, <laughs> what you do with the trowel, you build something. They're going to build the wall. My question to you is, what has God called you to build? A family? A ministry? A part of his church? A, a business? What has God called you to build? God called them to build something. That's the trowel. And we're going to use the trowel they are to build the wall, to rebuild the city, to build the church that God has called them to build. In addition, the sword. Remember what Jesus says in John 10.10. 10. 
Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Whatever God is trying to build, Satan is trying to break. Whatever God is building, Satan is in the process of destroying. You see, ministry is physical and spiritual. We build in the spiritual by the preaching of the word of God, by praying, by being filled with the Holy Spirit, by worshiping God. We are also do battle in the spiritual realm with prayer and intercession, and he's going to demonstrate that. So he builds and defends in the spiritual, but there's also the physical. He builds what God calls him to build, and then he defends from those who seek to destroy it. You need to know that there are powerful forces at work, political, cultural, even some religious and spiritual forces that are going to seek to destroy everything that God is trying to do in our church, in our life, in our ministry, in your family, in your company. And you can't be naive or gullible. In heaven, there are no gates. In Nehemiah, there are gates. It's because everyone in heaven is filled with the Spirit. In Nehemiah, not everyone is filled with the Holy Spirit. There are people who are filled with other spirits. And we have to stand firm against the enemy. And let me close with this encouragement. Jesus says this, I will build my church. The goal is not to spend most of our time and energy fighting our enemy. The goal is to complete our ministry assignment. I believe God has a great future for us. Now, we may not experience that culturally, economically, politically, but I believe there will be a great future for God's people. If we build what God has called us to build as a church and in our ministry and in our evangelism and in our outreach and defend it from those who would seek to destroy it. Again, that doesn't mean that we are mean. It doesn't mean that we hate, but we stand firm in our biblical conviction. As the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.